Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can you bribe the dead? Who was Pedro the Mummy? And who or what was the President's Vampire? About the only thing we haven't seen so far in this year's presidential campaign. Anyway, hello and welcome to the 644th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and Ben, I'm afraid, is under the weather today and uh, has not been able to do the show. He plans to be back next week, uh, fit as a fiddle. Uh, those questions, of course, uh, relate to our guest. Uh, we bring you someone you have not met before on our show with some extremely strange stories. And we've had a lot of requests for this guest, so we're really looking forward to our conversation. As always, we welcome your phone calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240 locally. And we will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Before we introduce our guest, I wanted to just mention uh, many of us realize uh, the passing this past week of uh, Glenn Laxton, uh, many, many years in radio and television in, in uh, Rhode Island and Southeastern Mass here, uh, most lately with Channel 12 and Providence. Uh, Glenn was a good friend of mine. He was the co-author of my of our book, uh, Rhode Island, A Genial History, and uh, he was certainly a good friend. Uh, and it is rather relatively rare for a print journalist like myself and a broadcast journalist to uh, work together so well. Uh, and I always told Glenn he was too nice to be a reporter, but he was a, one of the a true gentlemen and one of the greatest uh, people I've ever known. So Godspeed to Glenn Laxton. Robert Damon Schneck is a freelance writer specializing in anomalous phenomena and historical oddities. He is the author of The President's Vampire, a chapter of which was adapted for the horror film The Bye Bye Man, set for release by Dimension Films STX in October. Robert also wrote The Bye Bye Man and other strange but true tales, which I have right here. If you're looking at a computer, you can. Uh, we'll show you on the web feed. Uh, and Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. He also was a regular contributor to the Fortean Times and Fate magazine. He lives in New Jersey. Robert Schneck, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Yes, and you know, you and I first met, uh, so to speak, uh, on a radio show with, with uh, our good friend Timothy Green Beckley a few months back, and uh, I was uh, very impressed by um, by you, and that's why you're here. So, oh, thank um, you. I appreciate it. Let, let's start right off with um, what is your favorite story of the odd, or what is among your favorite stories of the odd from American history? Well, I, I have a favorite from uh, from the Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist, and it might seem silly, but when I set out to write it, I didn't really think much about it, but the more I worked on it, the more fascinated I became, and it's a chapter in Mrs. Wakeman called The Auto Decapitants, which is uh, a chapter devoted to men that built and used guillotines or hinged axes for committing suicide. Oh, dear. I, I don't know why, I just, it was such an odd thing to find, and then to find so many examples, uh, it, it was just, it's been, it's been interesting to me ever since. In fact, I gave one of the few public talks I've ever given uh, just on that subject at a place called the Morbid Anatomy Library in Brooklyn. And uh, it was very well received. I've been asked to do it again. It's just, uh, again, it's just such an odd and unexpected subject. Really? Uh, if, is, if 
And I'm, has it, is it limited to the United States, or, or have you run into it in other places? Oh, yeah. It, it, it takes place all over the world. I've found British examples, a Russian example. It, it's one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's generally done by somebody who is either an inventor or an engineer, somebody who takes pleasure in building a project. Now, a guillotine is not the easiest thing in the world to build. So uh, there, there are a million ways to mess it up. So my father is an engineer, so I was actually talking to him about it, and he said that the two basic ways, and he was right, are a hinged axe and a guillotine. But he said the hinged axe is so simple that it's not the sort of thing that an engineer is going to take any real pride in. <laughs> so the, so they re, uh, you know, my father's a genuine engineer, so uh, I... I assume this is the way other engineers think. Gosh knows they don't think like me. No, uh, no, no, nor uh, me. Uh, one would think that yeah, France would, would be rife with this sort of thing. That's just... There are a lot of examples from France. In fact, one of the earliest examples I found was of a Frenchman living in London who, when he decided to commit suicide, he, he, just, he lived until he ran out of money. And then he used his last few pounds or whatever he had shillings to build to, to purchase rather a some board and what they call a demi loon knife a half moon knife that's used for um, scraping the fat off skins and up in his room he built a guillotine and committed suicide that way and I, I somehow suspect that it was kind of a a nationalist statement. He was saying, "Here I am, a Frenchman alone in in England, but I, I here I'm I'm going to die in a peculiarly French manner, because of course the guillotine wasn't just a, a means of execution; it became a symbol of the revolution and of the Enlightenment." That's woe to the revolution. All right, no, well, let's no, move it, on it, from suicide. It, 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 uh, well, just very quickly, sure. That inspired a man in in uh, that inspired a man named Moon in Lafayette, Indiana, to commit suicide by building a gigantic hinged axe inside a hotel room in, in downtown Lafayette. So he brought in this uh, trunk that was very heavy, and he had it brought up to his room, and he was making noise that night, and what he had done was he had he purchased an axe head, a very big uh, broad axe head, and he went to a foundry and had some iron plate attached to it, then went up to his room, put this together on a very long hinged axe that was uh, attached to the floor. It was held together with, it was held up by a string that was next to a burning candle, and he stuck his head into a box containing chloroform-soaked cotton. And by the time the candle burned down, it, pro it uh, probably gave him time to at least be numbed by the chloroform, and they found him next, the next morning very neatly beheaded. Boy, uh, I'm sure housekeeping never forgave him. But you know, it's funny you should say that. The, the lady who found him was a 13-year-old girl oh. who had only been working at the hotel for about a week. However, she stayed there for decades. I think she, stayed, she, she worked there for something like 50 years. And I guess she figured that she was never going to find anything worse. I think that's probably a logical conclusion. Oh, my ears and whiskers. All right, who was Pedro the Mummy? Pedro the Mummy was a little 
figure that was found in, uh, he was a little corpse, a dried, mummified corpse, found in Wyoming in the late 19, uh, in the, it was 1932, I think, yeah, it was 1932, by two men that were gold, they were prospecting. It was, uh, they were probably prospecting because it was the worst year of the Depression and there really wasn't much else to do. So they were out prospecting and they found this blocked off, a small blocked off cave that was had some rocks in front of it, went inside and they found this little figure sitting on a, a natural stone shelf. And he looks like a very old man. Well, they, they brought him back, they sold him, and Pedro has kind of a, uh, his history really consists of being sold back and forth between people who exhibited him until finally he was exhibit he was sold he was uh, borrowed by a man in New York City who uh, who examined him and found and figured out uh, he was a famous scientist actually at the at the uh, New York, at the uh, Museum of Natural History he was famous for his research on Java Man and on Neanderthals, if I remember correctly. And he he looked at Pedro and he x-rayed him and said that he was real. I, he uh, he had bones inside. He had uh, he was really he was really flesh and blood, or at least he had been at one point. And then Pedro vanished in the 1950s. So there's always been some question about what Pedro actually was. Now the local Shoshones have. Uh, legends about little people called Nymerigers who um, would shoot, who would were dangerous. They would actually ca- catch and eat hunters that uh, annoyed them or went you know, or got onto their land. But they were always in danger of being carried off by hawks. So hmm. it was, you know, there was some danger for Nymerigers to come out. Anyway, um, after Pedro disappeared, he became sort of a standard in the strange but true i'm almost positive he's in stranger than science uh frank edwards book because i'm pretty sure that's where i first read of him yeah me too actually i think yeah yeah that's and and no one knows where he is today no pedro vanished although there are rumors that he's owned that he's in florida uh the the son of the man that owned him is still looking for him He's been, he's shown up in some, uh, the story of Pedro has shown up in some odd spots. Uh, for example, for some reason, people that are against evolution have used the story of Pedro. I'm not quite sure how. Hmm. Um, but he shows up in some sites like that. And uh, there is a reward for him. But other Pedros have shown up. And it's believed that they were babies were suffering from a folic acid, if I remember correctly, a folic acid deficiency. The mothers were suffering from folic acid deficiency. Hmm. And the babies were suffering from something called anencephaly, which oh. is really being born essentially without a brain. Yeah. And yeah. the top of the head isn't even closed upright, which gave Pedro, it almost looked like his head was matted hair, but it was probably shriveled flesh. Yeah. And shriveled membrane. Okay, it, it's do different we... than the Zika babies, uh, but it, it, it's actually even a more extreme. Okay, do we know about the when Pedro lived? That's 
that's actually kind of a an open question. There have been stories. I mean, Dr. George Gill, who is a professor in Wyoming, has been studying them. And there are rumors that these things could be almost a thousand years old. No one's really sure. Another Pedro showed up, and Dr. Gill has, or Professor Gill, has given that one a thorough examination. But I haven't found the uh, paper that he finally wrote about it. I, have, hmm. I still have to do that because, uh, you know, I wrote about Pedro over uh, something like ten years ago. So there have been developments since then. Okay. Huh. Well, we'd like to hear more about that as, as things develop. Um, what is the God Machine? That was a machine that was built by the Reverend John Murray Spear in Lynn, Massachusetts, around the middle of the 19th century. Spear was a spiritualist. He he began as a universalist minister and was famous as an abolitionist and as a... um, an abolitionist? Oh, and for visiting prisoners. In fact, he published a magazine called The Prisoner's Friend. He was one of the earliest people to be out there for prison reform. But, like a lot of advanced thinkers of the time, he became very involved in spiritualism. And he believed that a group of spirits made up of the spirits of geniuses that had once lived on Earth, that these geniuses formed committees in the spirit world, and that they were speaking through John Murray's spear and sending him great inventions and ideas for cities and things like that because they were going to improve the existence of mankind. Well, one of the things that they sent him was a design for something called the, the new mode of power or as it was sometimes called, the mechanical messiah, or other names. And over a period of time, Spear and some of his followers were given the use of a shed on top of a place called High Rock in Lynn, Massachusetts. And as he would have these visions from the spirits, well, they weren't visions, apparently Spear didn't go into trances, It's just whatever came into his mind, he thought, came from the spirits. (laughs) And he would design different pieces of the God machine. There were pieces that were magnetic, pieces made of precious and semi-precious stones, uh, expensive metals, all of which had to be machined to very proper proportions. And it was put together, somebody who was there said they assembled it kind of like decorating a Christmas tree. So it wasn't a machine in the proper sense. It was more of a spiritual machine. It was kind of a a representation of a spiritualized industrial revolution, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does, yes, as far as it goes. Uh, And Spear, it wasn't big, but this was only going to be a model for one that was supposed to be gigantic. But he built it on a table, and it had two legs, that uh, were a po- one was a positive and one was a negative charge, and it had mechanical pieces that more or less approximated human organs and the brain and things like that. And the story gets a little vague, but apparently Spear contributed some of his essence to the machine to um, give it life. And 
one of its followers became spiritually pregnant with the spirit that was going to enter into the machine. Well, she became spiritually pregnant and finally gave birth, so to speak, in the shed, and the spirit that was in her was supposed to enter the God machine. According to witnesses, it moved a tiny little bit initially, but Spears said that it was an electrical infant, and it needed to be, it was very weak because it had just been born. So, it again, gets kind of vague, but possibly the thing was breastfed. It's, like I said, it's very, it, they're, you know how 19th century writers can be very euphemistic, and yes. it, you end up thinking things that are not right, mm-hmm. like with Spears' essence, although I think that part's right. Um, uh, and supposedly this was going to give the machine the power that it needed to become fully functioning. Well, it, didn't, it still wasn't working, and people came and visited it, but it just sat there. And finally, Spear moved it to a, a place in New York State that was supposed to have a high elevation, which would make the machine more likely to absorb um, the power, uh, spiritual power, because it was higher in the air. Supposedly, this is Spears' story, supposedly a group of local farmers were riled up by a minister and they broke into the shed where the, where the God machine was stored and smashed it. And that was the end of the God machine. However, it still uh, apparently Spear kept uh, the pieces of it because it shows up later at this little utopian community that he... Uh, a little spiritualist utopian community oh, that he founded. Yeah. Do you? Well, other than that, though, it's vanished from history. Okay. Do you research these for legitimacy, uh, or are you just the messenger? Oh no, I, I research them. I. Okay. Uh, that's my favorite part of writing. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in fact, if if it if it didn't involve research, I wouldn't do it. The thing that really motivates me is I look for for cool stuff and I want to run up to people and say look what I found look what I found but the only way you can do that is um, by writing it yeah I, yeah. so yeah. so that's that's more or less how I ended up doing this because I was a reader you know I was the person with 10,000 books on the paranormal and after you know it's funny actually I can tell you pretty much what got me going it was a chapter in Lauren Coleman's book Mysterious America yeah. on on uh, the Phantom Clowns. I was just fascinated by that. And and I realized that there's a lot of things going on that I really don't know about, and I began to go back into it, and I started writing. You know, there are so many writers who just will take something somebody else wrote and throw it together in a new way in a, in a, in a book, and it's so wonderful to meet someone who appreciates research for its own sake. And uh, I, I dare say knowledge for its own sake, and I really respect that. It's great to hear. Well, I appreciate that, Paul, because I'll tell you, this again comes from me being a reader. Yes. Because I'm the person who, if I buy a, a book of paranormal stories, I want to hear stories I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if I can't find stories I don't know, I want to find out something new about a story I do know. And that's, 
that's how I choose the stories that I write. Either I never heard of it, or I or I found some aspect of it that I thought was really interesting and needed to be. And I thought that people like me would be interested in it. Absolutely. And then, of course, I found the Fortean Times, and I realized there was a market for this stuff, which made everything a lot easier. Absolutely. Uh, j- just wonderful. Uh, we've been mentioning Mrs. Wakeman, and it's the title of one of your books. Uh, who was Mrs. Wakeman? Mrs. Wakeman was the cult leader in, uh, where is Yale again? In New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah she, was a, uh, she was a cult leader in New Haven, Connecticut. And she she claimed uh, this was a, uh, in the first half of the 19th century. She claimed that her husband, who was a brutal alcoholic, murdered her. And when she was dead, she went to heaven, met Jesus and the angels and God, and was told that she was the Messiah, and oh, that dear. it was her job to. Uh, save humanity through her teachings and her teachings were pretty uh, they they weren't anything very unusual except that she was the messiah and one of the odd things about her was that she believed that the man of sin who is mentioned in the bible and usually interpreted as the antichrist that the man of sin was trying to to kill her because if he could kill her the universe would be destroyed, unsaved. Now, the spirit of the man of sin would move from person to person and try to kill her using magical powers and poison and things like that. The first person who was possessed by the man of sin was her husband who tried to kill her. And then, as she got a few followers, she never had many followers, But she got a few followers, including her half-brother, who was her most enthusiastic follower. Um, The spirit would then move to someone else, usually someone she didn't like. And she would claim that they were tormenting her with uh, magic and things like that. Over time, she eventually was able to spend all of her time doing religious teaching, uh, and she, when she finally settled in a small house in New Haven, and as the newspapers like to point out at the time, it was practically in the shadow of Yale. And she would talk about the Bible, and she would hold these little prayer sessions, but one of her followers, she believed, be, had become possessed by the Antichrist and was torturing her magically and was going to kill her. In fact, she claimed that there were that he was making small creatures and animals appear in her throat and in her chest, and they were going to kill her. Well, finally, they uh, they tied up this poor man and demanded that he that he that the that he let go of this demon. And he said that he would if he could. He was a follower of Mrs. Wakeman, and they beat him. And finally, her half brother cut his throat, and he died. The next day his son came over to see what had happened and found his dead body they called the police mrs wakeman was arrested and then later that week one of her followers not one of her close followers but one of her followers claimed that he was being tormented by witchcraft too and he went out and he chopped the heads off two old men 
who were living in the neighborhood, and he was finally caught after a chase through the snow. He he was go he was sentenced to death, although he was he was so obviously deranged. But his the son of one of his victims was an important man in uh, politics, and probably had something to do with him getting the death penalty. But he died before, possibly of tuberculosis, before the sentence was carried out. Actually, we have to take so, our break. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. I'll have to interrupt you, uh, Robert. We'll, we'll, we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. On WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest in just a moment. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide. Hi, this is Don Brunell inviting you to join me for ON Midday. Weekdays from noon to 2, right here on ON 1240 Radio. We've got Gold Cuts guests in our daily super quiz. The Midday Show, right here on ON, local radio at its best. ON Radio, ON Worldwide. Okay, well, welcome back. And there are a number of charities Ben and I have adopted, uh, many, many veterans' charities, etc., and also Haiti and uh, one in Los Angeles where great things are happening for at-risk youth, but we'll be right, we'll be talking about that during our announcement section at the end of the show. Right now, let's get back to Robert Damon Schneck and some of the strangest stories I've ever heard. Uh, Robert, why don't you just finish up what you were saying about Mrs. Wakeman? Okay, I, I, I just wanted to say one thing, that what got me going on Mrs. Wakeman was I watched a documentary. I think the title of it was, <clears throat> excuse me one second, I think the title of it was The Manson Women. And it was about the, no, the Charles Manson murders and his followers. And one of the reporters that they were interviewing said that, the, that part of the reason the Manson murders got so much attention was that it was the first cult murder in American history. And when I heard that, I said, no, that can't be right. No. Because there were so many crazy little cults in the 19th century and in the early 20th century that I, I knew there had to be more of them, and I found quite a few. Um, I found uh, a, a, a girl who was murdered by her father because she was going because he was reenacting Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, I found a group that chopped the head off somebody that said something that annoyed them and kicked it around the yard. All in, uh, all in the nineteenth were... and early twentieth centuries. Yeah, all in the 19th and early 20th century. Well, yeah. you know, the 19th century was the great age of revival in the United States. There was the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. There was the burned-over district in Upper New York State that produced uh, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, spiritualism, so much of what became, uh, including more, more mainstream religions like Methodism became, really grew out of the, the Great Awakenings and all that. But along with these more conventional religions, there were some very odd little groups. And uh, Mrs. Wakeman actually predates them, but she was not that unusual. There were a lot of small groups like hers, although most of them didn't end up killing anyone. Well, that's good to know, but amazing. Yes. L let's move on to uh, something a little different, uh, now for something completely different. Uh, the West Virginia town named after a poltergeist? Yes, that was um, that was one of the, I actually was so grateful because I had the chance to visit the town, and 
at one point this town in the 18th century was called Wizard Clip because there was a local poltergeist who had been named the Wizard Clip. He had a peculiar, he had one signature move, and that was that in addition to the usual poltergeist stuff of breaking things, making pounding noises, scaring everybody, um, he would, you'd hear a clipping sound like metallic shears working. And anything that could be cut would end up being ter- would be end up being cut to shreds. So anything made of cloth or leather would end up uh, found in pieces. For example, there was a boot that was sitting in the house belonging to this farmer uh, named Livingston, and. The, the, which was where the uh, which is where the haunting of the, of the wizard clip was uh, the farm of a man a farmer named Livingston. The boot looked normal, but when someone touched it, it collapsed like a cord apple. It had been spiral cut. And uh, when a woman came to visit, because they got a lot of visitors who wanted to see the who wanted to see the poltergeist, she took her new cap and she wrapped it up in a handkerchief. And when she left, she discovered that it had been cut to shreds. Now, the wizard clip was really unusual because after he was banished by a Catholic priest, and there were very few Catholic priests in the United States at the time, Mm. but he was finally banished by the Catholic priest, after which the Livingston family was haunted by something called the voice. And the voice was... They, they were never really sure what exactly it was. They thought it was the ghost of a priest. But it insisted that the entire family convert to Catholicism, that it take up the Catholic faith, that it get up at night and pray for hours at a time for souls in purgatory. And it was really kind of a religious bigot <laughs> in its insistence on, uh, on, on everything the family do. The, the, everything the family did. In fact, I, I mean, it, it had a reputation for doing some really nasty things. For example, there was a woman who was dying, and a minister went to go get his horse so he could ride to her and get her last... Uh, I'm sorry, it was a priest who wanted to get her last confession. So he went to get his horse, but the wizard... Cl- but the voice, rather, not the wizard clip, the voice had made the horse invisible. That way, the ho- the, minute the priest couldn't get there in time. The woman would die and go to hell with, because she hadn't had a chance to be absolved. And the voice did this as a lesson to everyone that you shouldn't do last-minute confessions. <laughs> he did stuff like that all the time. So when, finally, the, the mother was driven from the house, she couldn't stand him anymore. And after the father moved to Pennsylvania... The children wanted nothing to do with the Catholic Church. They were driven away by from by the uh, the voice too. And finally, uh, Mr. Livingston left a left the farm to the Roman Catholic Church, and it was more or less just uh, left to rot for years. Some local Catholics used it as a cemetery because they felt that there had been some. You know some miraculous activity on 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 the ground. Finally, the church, after some legal problems, the church uh, built an All Souls church there, 
and it's now the Carmel Religious Retreat in uh, outside of Middletown, West Virginia, which is what used to be Wizard Clip. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. It's a very peaceful, quiet place, but as you go through it, you will find little reminders of the days of the voice and the Wizard Clip. One of the explanations for the Wizard Clip was that the that a, a, a traveler had shown up at far at, at Livingston's house, and because he was a Catholic and he was dying, but Livingston was a bigot and he wouldn't call a priest. He would only call a minister. He wouldn't allow a priest on his land. And when this man died, have uh, unabsolved, he had come back to haunt him as the wizard clip. Now there is a, a very large wooden cross on the. Uh, at the end of a long path through the woods at the retreat, and it's called the Grave of the Unknown Traveler, and it marks, it, symbolically, it marks the site of that man who, uh, who died and without being given absolution. And when I visited it, it was wrapped in um, rosary beads. I guess people were kind of like charging their rosary beads up spiritually. Hmm. And uh, it was fascinating to visit it. Uh, I always try to visit places if I possibly can because it gives you so much more to write about and it, oh, yes. it gives the writing uh, an integrity and a reality that doesn't come from just using old newspaper clips. Oh, so true. Like that. So true. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, Robert. Um, when the Wizard Clip case was taking place, uh, was it limited to that Livingston farm or was it, uh, were, were the, it was, was not, there evidence it was not of like it elsewhere? The Bell Witch. It was not like not the like Bell Witch. Not like the Bell Witch, okay. Not, no, it didn't haunt the whole town. Okay. It haunted the farm, and it bothered some of the neighbors, supposedly. But it was it was no Bell Witch. Um, okay. The wizard clip was... It, it, there were none of those prophecies or anything like that. But, but what just was so fascinating, what, what made me finally write about it, was not really the wizard clip, because that's kind of a typical... 18th century poltergeist, but it was the voice, because I'd never heard of anything like that. And a lot of what the voice did really sounds like pretty standard poltergeist stuff to me. Mm. So it's a very odd story and worth looking at. It's, it's a very unusual one in the history of, uh, of American poltergeist. In fact, if you visit the historical district of Middletown, You'll see it's decorated with scissors because of the wizard clip, <laughs> and there's uh, and there's an, at the sign entry to Middletown Historical District. You'll see a picture of the ghost of the wizard clip. Really? He, uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things that just hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it really is interesting. And uh, the Middletown Historical District is fascinating. It, huh. it, it's very small, but it contains some of the oldest houses in the United States from that era. Wow. When you look at some of these cases, such as that, one that that affects uh, even if it's just a farm and people know about it, um, I wonder, we always wonder if there are UFO reports or strange lights or you know other seemingly unrelated things that occur in places such as that. Not in the case of the wizard clip uh, and not in the case of the voice, although... If you want to take that attitude, you know, there are, if you want to take that perspective, rather, 
there are certain things that happened that were very strange. For example, when the wizard, when the voice, sorry, it's been a while since I've talked about this, when the voice wanted the family to wake up, it uh, filled the house with blinding light, and it commanded them to wake up and and uh, uh, pray for souls in purgatory. What, one other odd thing about the uh, the voice was it 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 continue, it, it did something that was really more typical of European ghost stories than American ones, and that was that when one of Livingston's daughters she was ironing something and she said she was thinking to herself that you know they were doing all this praying for souls in purgatory and she thought to herself well if they're in purgatory I guess they deserve it and when the voice heard her thoughts or whatever it was he burned his handprint into the piece of cloth that she was um ironing and he burned in I think he burned a cross and some letters in some also and that was really something that comes out of a European tradition you know there's a whole museum in Rome dedicated to nothing but the burned handprints from spirits in purgatory it's not a big museum but it, I didn't but know it does that. have yeah there's this, there's this little museum in a church in Rome I can't remember the name offhand but it's got it's a collection of handprints, fingerprints, markings supposedly burned into objects by spirits that were suffering the burning of purgatory. And again, this was a reminder to people of how those souls were suffering. But isn't uh, that as, fascinatingly as, physical for something yeah, that's supposed is. to be a spirit? Well, it's like one of the really odd things about the uh, the wizard clip was that it didn't just cut things into shreds. It cut things into little crescent moon shapes. And one of the pieces that it cut was preserved for a long time in a convent before it was finally lost in a flood. And according to somebody who saw it, they said it looked almost like mechanical... It, it almost looked like it had been mechanically cut in a series of little moons. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, you can, if you want to start thinking about uh, odd things to compare that to, you can think of those famous little footprints, those little um, hoofed footprints, those were little crescent things. You can think of those famous crescent-shaped ships that flew over Mount Rainier and, and uh, brought us to the UFO age, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things I thought was so interesting about the wizard clip was his uh, penchant for crescents. Amazing. Robert, we're burning up this hour very quickly. I uh, wanted to give oh, you a chance. One other thing, I'm sorry. Sure. I'm sorry. One other thing, Paul. There is a statue of Livingston at, um, at, the, at the retreat. It's, it's a relief, a wooden relief. And one of the things that's interesting is he's looking at this burning cross, and he's stepping on little crescents because really? as, as a symbol of the, uh, of, the, of the defeat of the wizard clip. Incredible. Yeah, it really well, is worth seeing. Absolutely amazing. I, I think I'm going to head to West Virginia pretty soon. Robert, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books, your website, where people can find out more about you, where they can oh, get the sure, books. Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, the most recent release is The Bye-Bye Man, which is the story of, 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 a, of a terrifying specter. Yeah, our producer's holding it up monster. right now. 
Oh, okay, great. Yeah, if anybody <laughs> that's, that's happens some, to be listening on a computer. Okay. That uh, any, Anyway, some uh, college students summoned him up using a Ouija board, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a very scary story, one of the few stories that ever frightened me. And, uh, the, oh, you know, the information you got was wrong. It's not October 9th. It's December 9th. Oh, that, okay. Uh, the, 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 that the movie is supposed to be released. But they, they changed the dates a few times. Um, uh, and a few years ago, I was talking about it on the radio. Some people in Hollywood heard about it, and they thought it would make a, a good movie. And, you know, I don't quite know how it happened, but they actually made it into a movie. Well, you never know who's movie. listening. No, you really don't. Um, my uh, Mrs. Wakeman versus... Oh, and by the way, um, you can get... The, you can get the Bye Bye Man also as a book on tape with Scott Brick doing the reading, and he's really good. Right. As, as as one who's read it, it is amazing, and I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, Mrs. Wakeman is the uh, is my second book, and it contains more uh, more very strange stories. Although I think these stories are a little more obscure, and uh, I think anyone interested in the strange and Strange but true, and the, the uh, paranormal will find them interesting because I look at some different. I look at Bigfoot from a different perspective, and I also look at those phantom clowns I was talking about. I try to explain a possible origin of them because no one's really when no one's really gone into that, explored where they might have come from. Personally, I think they come out of American black folklore, and I explain it in the. Uh, in the in the story, uh, okay. I've got my website is really a Facebook page, and it's Historian of the Strange uh, on Facebook. I post something there pretty much every day, and uh, other people post. And any you know, if you're interested in oddities, uh, again, you can find something every day. Today I posted on mm. some of the last. Uh, there were uh, today I posted on Civil War veterans who had formed these things called Last Man Clubs, and uh, with a picture of a man who was the 33rd, he was the last surviving member of a Last Man Club, who had, they had all served in the Civil War together, and he was the 33rd one, and he was the last one alive, and he was drinking some sour wine that uh, that was going to be drunk by the last man to survive. And you'll find these, that they, they begin to show up in the 1920s and 30s, because that's when the Civil War veterans really started to die yeah. uh, in big numbers. Wow. Uh, but, but, but again, there's also ghosts and monsters and uh, murder and suicide and bizarre, grotesque things. A lot of stuff. Okay. Well, we don't have much time left, but I, I really couldn't let the hour pass, uh, seeing as we broadcast from uh, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, which was the home of Marie Rose Farron, uh, a stigmatic or alleged stigmatic, someone who, uh, upon whose body, uh, reportedly appeared the wounds of, of Christ. And you have written about some stigmatics. And, uh, just very briefly, um, what was it, uh, Cloretta Robertson? Cloretta you wrote Robertson. about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was a, um, a 10 year old black girl living in Oakland, California. She was not a Roman Catholic, but she was extremely religious. And as far as I know, she is the only non-white, non-Roman Catholic stigmatic to get the classic stigma, the bleeding from the palms, the uh, crown of thorns, and the bleeding from the feet. And she was examined 
by psychologists who said she was a perfectly normal girl. She was just extremely religious, and she came from a nice family. And around Easter, she would begin to bleed from her palms. This happened for a couple of years. I never found... Uh, she, she was eventually appearing at religious revivals when she was around 17. And I have... I've never found out what happened to her after that. I... She seems to have been a very nice lady, and I hope her life turned out well. Mm -hmm. I could understand why she might have gotten tired of being known as the stigmatic, and she might have wanted a normal life. So yeah. I, I believe she's still alive because I did come across some contact information from her once, but I decided to leave her alone. I didn't want to bother her. Well, good for you. I mean, I, I respect that. And just before we run out of time completely, we uh, the title of the show was The President's Vampire. If <laughs> you just explain what the hey that oh, is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, in one of Charles Sport's books, he tells the story of a fishing boat out of Boston where one of the sailors disappeared, then another sailor disappeared, and the captain did a search. He found that one of the sailors had murdered and sucked the blood out of the other two. So he was put in chains, brought back to Boston, put on trial, and sentenced to death. Someone appealed the sentence to President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, mm -hmm. and, and he commuted the sentence from death to imprisonment um, because there were some circumstances. This man wasn't quite right. He spent a few years in prison, and then he was finally moved to um, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., which was a mental hospital. I thought that I had come, I, I, I thought it was a fascinating story, and I thought I'd found an early example of an American serial killer. So I began to do some serious research. I mean, really deep delving research. I actually found the ship's log of the day of the murder. Which really? had been, you know, yes, the entry had been made a few hours after the event. I, I, that is still talking about it, still gets, gives me chills. I still get so excited about it. I also learned that the story that Charles Fort told and that the newspapers told was entirely wrong, hmm. completely wrong. There was no blood drinking. The man was a ship's cook. He had gotten into an argument on a whaling ship in the Indian Ocean with another sailor. They were actually arguing about the quality of the food. He stabbed the sailor, threw the knife overboard, and was taken back to Boston and put on trial, sentenced to death. Uh, and from then on, the story begins to appear in the newspaper that he was some kind of a vampire. Ah. Why this happened, I have a theory, but, you know, I don't know how much time we have to go into that. But, um... Well, br uh, briefly. So, okay, I think that the story got mixed up with the story of Mercy Brown. Oh, right this here in Rhode Island. Name, yeah, the sailor's name was James Brown, and he was... The story about him being a blood drinker appeared the same year, in fact, just a few months, after the Mercy Brown story showed up. Oh, that's very plausible. And I think it's the only explanation I can think of. And one other thing that I think is, is interesting about this is that the story about him, about the sailor, about the vampire sailor feeding on his other crew members, that appeared just at the same time that Bram Stoker was collecting material exactly. for Dracula. Yep. And we know, we know that he was cutting out newspaper clippings. And there's that whole section where Dracula travels from Transylvania to England. And what does he do? He feeds on the crew. Again, I can't prove that happened, 
but I, I can't help but think that it might have had something to do with it. Now, I came to the same conclusion and put it in one of my books, as a matter of fact. Because the Mercy really? Brown thing was, was right near. Well, as a matter of fact, many of the stories you mentioned uh, have southern New England connections right right in our own listening area. So it's terrific. Yeah, I, I, write, I seem to write about Connecticut a lot, which is strange to me. It's such a small state, yet so many interesting things have happened there. Well, the My vampire, uh, yeah, the, the vampire uh, hysteria, really, of the uh, the from the time of the revolution, before the revolution, all the way up uh, to the 1890s, really. Oh yeah, bizarre. You know, that's that is the last time we know about it. I I mm-hmm. can't help but think that it probably went on very quietly for longer after that. You know, it's really astonishing when you think about it. The 1890s. We're, we're talking yeah. about pretty recent history. That's yesterday. It really is, and you, you know one of the things I read food for the food for the uh, food for the dead. Oh, Michael by, by Mike Bell. Book. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've read it too. Yeah, I, I know Mike. The, yeah, yeah. He's a fascinating guy, and it, it's it's a great book. And one of the one of the reasons I like that book is he tries to explain where the belief came from, and even he has trouble doing that. Yeah, because. Vampirism was not really a big thing in England, and they, they didn't even use the word vampire. All we could think of was that perhaps uh, with the seafaring nature of our population here, uh, perhaps someone had picked it up from someone from the um, the from Eastern Europe, because the traditions yeah, seemed of, to match Eastern Europe's. And of course, it might have been maybe one some of the Hessian soldiers that stayed here after the Very revolution. Very true. Very true. A lot of you them know, did the, stay, and they married local girls, and that was it. That's know? right. Not wow. to mention all of the not to mention all of the German settlement in Pennsylvania and places like that. And of course, vampire, vampire was a big thing in German folklore. Absolutely. So you know, those are possibilities. Yeah. But it really it really is interesting. Uh, how much time do we have, Paul? Uh, we, I'm afraid we're out of time. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Something uh, else I wanted to bring up. You can be sure that we're going to be doing more shows because this is one of the most fascinating. You know, just when you think you've heard everything, kind of things. So, Robert, oh, thank you, Robert. Uh, give us your Facebook page one more time, please. Okay, it's Historian of the Strange on Facebook. Uh, the mo- the book is the Bye Bye Man. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, other bookstores. Yeah, you the, can our also producer's get holding it, it up again. Scott yeah. Brick. Okay, excellent. And uh, and uh, the President's Man, and of course, uh, Mrs. Wakeman versus the Antichrist. Very good. Uh, Robert, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. My pleasure, Paul. Anytime. Very good. Okay, folks, Robert Damon Schneck, absolutely amazing. So our next public appearance, that's Ben's and mine, uh, will be at the Connecticut Gathering of the Paranormal, as it's called, in Woonsocket, not Woonsocket, in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, on Saturday and Sunday, July 23rd and 24th, kind of right around the corner. Now, we will speak on Saturday, then on Sunday we will host the weekly edition of this show with a panel of all the speakers before a live audience. Also speaking will be our friends and colleagues, Shane Searway, who frequently appears on the show, and William J. Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House and The Haunted House Diaries. This event will begin, I should say, will benefit the Queen of Hearts Thoroughbred Retirement Home Farm, I should say, in Maine. Even horses need retirement homes. September 3rd and 4th will once again be on the agenda at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. Among other things, we'll be talking about a new paranormal flap case in Pennsylvania, which has just begun, or at least we've just begun to investigate it. On October 18th, we'll speak at the uh, MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, a very credible organization, uh, having an event in Philadelphia, and later that month at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, as we do each year. 
More information as these dates approach. Meanwhile, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll also find over 650 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Our forthcoming book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now available for pre-order on the publisher's website, SchifferBooks.com. Uh, just do a search for Behind the Paranormal, uh, or use the link on BehindTheParanormal.com to get there. Uh, it's also available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Now, again, the title, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, by Paul Eno and Ben Eno. Uh, the book is slated for release by Schiffer in January 2017. There will be a release party of some kind. We don't know where yet, but we'll let you know about that, probably locally here. Uh, you can find uh, my other books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, and The Usual Suspects. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I'll sign them for you, and you'll help us keep all those podcasts and recorded shows free. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several charities uh, that we alluded to before that we've adopted, including USACares.org, doing great things financially for veterans of the War on Terror, and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. <coughs> .org as well, doing great things for our brothers to the north and sisters who served in the war on terror as well. Also, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great things for at-risk youth in uh, areas out there in the west on the West Coast. Uh, that's YouthMentoring.org. Tony Loray doing great stuff. Uh, also, HelpForHaiti.com. I know some of those people, and the money gets where it needs to be. So uh, let's um, talk about next Week that's uh, Sunday, uh, June nineteenth. We'll welcome back uh, New York City area psychoanalyst Dr. Gibbs Williams for a discussion about strange synchronicities, things that we think are coincidences and probably may or may not be. So we'll leave you this afternoon with a good thought from British philosopher and historian Bertrand Russell: "The good life is one inspired by love and guided by knowledge." I'm Paul Eno, and uh, thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we'll be seeing you next week. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.